0: Good morning, Mainstream. You got me there? Good morning. Um, As you are opening your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 49. Is where we're going to be today. And as I look up at the clocks, I recognize that uh, they have not moved forward. So I guess I have an hour and 45 minutes to preach. And those of you that are preachers know that is like a dream. So, uh, no, I recognize that uh, we're a little behind, and so I'll make sure that I I get you guys out here on time. So Psalm 49 is uh, the passage that we're going to be in today. And as you're turning there, I just want to uh, echo what Rich said. Um, this year is my sixth uh, Shepherd's Conference. I uh, came down here as a, an elder um, at a church plant six years ago and, and uh, completely uh, unaware of where I would be six years from that point, uh, blessed by my first Shepherds Conference, and now six years later to see uh, how the Lord continues to use that each and every year and how He uses so many of you. I would just uh, encourage each of you. Um, when I came, the, the most impactful thing of my, my Shepherds experience really wasn't the preaching. That was great. It was amazing, but it was the love that was shown by the Volunteers. That was dramatic, and that was something I wasn't prepared for, as Richard had mentioned. So I just want to continue to to thank you all for uh, just how you do that each year. You know, it's such a, a privilege to be able to serve alongside you, so thank you. Psalm 49, let's get there. I want to read the text for us, and then I want to pray, offer this time to the Lord, and we'll jump into it. Psalm 49 reads, For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, and I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches." No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations." They've called their lands after their own names, but man and his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. And this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. Salah. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning and their form shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself, and though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning so thankful for the opportunity we have to be in your word. Father, I confess that, uh, Lord, that I am a weak vessel, Lord, and incapable of uh, doing anything without the power of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would speak through me and that you would, Lord, use your word to impact hearts this morning, that we would be changed by what we hear, and that we would leave this place not content to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it. Please bless the teaching of your word this morning, Lord. May many be touched by it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As 2011 um, was April, uh, spring up in Northern California where my wife and I come from, uh, is a, an especially enjoyable season. Uh, April, besides being the month of my birth, um, which is an, not significant, but uh, <laughs> beyond that, only for my wife and children. Beyond that, it's a, it is a wonderful month because it's the month that all the orchards are, are full of new greenery. Um, the trees are, are starting to, to get their blossoms or their blossoms have finished in the case of the almonds. Um, and the flowers are just bursting forth. Uh, It's just one of my favorite seasons. We had roses in our home, and so it's usually when we get our first bloom of roses. Well, this particular April, uh, I had been away for the weekend at a uh, a, a donor benefit, basically. It was a fundraiser for the American Cancer Society. And to do this, every year I'd go out and take a hundred students with me, and we would stay up for a 24-hour event. So I had been awake for 36 hours at this point as I'd drove myself home and uh, anticipating the joy of crawling into my bed (laughs) and being dead to the world for a bit. When I came into the driveway, I recognized pretty clearly, pretty quickly that there was something wrong. Um, As I opened up the garage door, my wife had arrived at the same time. She had been staying with my parents. And so we both drove up our cars separately at the same time. The door came up and I noticed that the interior door to the house was propped open. There was a there was a bucket that was holding it open. And so I told my wife to stay in the car with the kids and I went around to the front of the house and you know, some of you already, I can tell by your faces, you know what I encountered. The front door had been kicked in. And I told my wife to go to a friend's of ours that were a few miles away. And, and I cautiously uh, called the police, not cautiously, I called them quickly. <laughs> but then I cautiously tried to make my way in uh, to see what had happened. What I found was, of course, the remnants of a robbery. Um, Fortunately for, I'm not sure why, the criminals were spooked off. Uh, There were blankets laid down throughout the house with a a host of items that it looks like they were in the process of stealing, but they didn't get to. Um, And I knew pretty quickly that this was going to change um, my, my day. I wasn't going to enjoy the rest of my bed for a while. In fact, it was going to be far more than 36 hours. So it it really began, if any of you have ever went through that experience, the the process of then dealing with the insurance company. And what that included over the next several months was us trying to figure out what was stolen. And some of the things that were stolen, it's kind of interesting as my wife and I were talking about this. um, This included all of my musical instruments. For those of you that uh, play any instruments, that was a hard one for me to take. Um, My basketball shoes, uh, post- (laughs) Postage stamps um, they even stole meat out of our freezer, our computer, some tools out of my garage my wife 's wedding ring. yeah, I, I anticipated that one, even a jar of peanut butter now i don't i don 't tell this story as an introduction just to reminisce about that um, about the the odd items that were taken, but rather, I tell this story because all of that all those possessions about worth that were stolen. You know, the Lord used that very interestingly to teach us a lesson, to teach us really what stuff meant. You know, pretty much all of those things, even my wife's wedding ring, we were able to replace. Most of the items were just things. They were replaceable. And I think what the Lord did in that was, again, just pulling another layer out of what I was trusting in my life. I had trusted in this acquiring and and uh, acquisition of things. I trusted in what I had. And I found through that experience that that was really a hollow hope. What he did is he loosened my grip on the things of this world through that. And he's continued to do that through other means um, over the the past years. The text before us, in essence, does the same thing. It speaks to this matter. Psalm 49 is a, a wisdom psalm that's written to a world where greed is common and trusting in wealth is not only acceptable, but I would say, in many places, encouraged. It's something that we, we brag about. I just saw uh, on, on the news, I was <laughs> looking around on, on the Internet yesterday, and there was a gentleman that just bought an eight-million dollar Rolls-Royce. First of all, I don't know how you can make a car worth that value, but that's something that was bragged about and all over you know social media. In this psalm, the psalmist is going to lay out an argument that I think makes it really clear that trusting in wealth is foolish, and I would say, in some ways, even a dangerous route to take. In Psalm 49, the psalmist's argument will be arranged in four parts we're going to look at, and we're going to see the emptiness of setting one's heart on riches, and I would add the blessing of setting one's hope on God. And I'll just lay out the outline for you. We're going to see a clear address a certain equalizer, a contrasting destiny, and a closing appeal. So let's look at our text. First of all, verse 1. Let's look at a clear address, and this is made to all men. Read the verses with me. Verse 1. Hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world. Now, Psalm. this psalm in particular as a wisdom psalm is a little different from some of the others. Um, it, will, it will read very much like Ecclesiastes and very much like Proverbs. And the psalmist starts in verses 1 through 4 and really just kind of gives us an introduction. This is the appetizer to the song, as it were. He's going to set up the text by telling us a few things and a few reasons why we should even listen. And notice in verse 1, what's he say? There's an eagerness to his address, isn't there? He begins by saying, hear this, give ear. Both of these verbs here are in the imperative. They're commands to pay attention to the message that's going to be proclaimed. Give ear. He's not suggesting that one might listen. He's not suggesting that it it be a good idea to listen. He's compelling the audience to hear what is coming. But, but who's he telling that to? Who's he speaking to? Notice as well in verse one, the extent of his audience, he says, hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world. Now, I was a science teacher, not an English teacher. So if there's any English teachers here, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that word all means all. <laughs> Even a science teacher knows that. All, all peoples, all inhabitants. He's not talking just to a specific group or a section of, he's not just the Israelites or just the, the Gentiles. This is all peoples, all inhabitants of the world. It's expanded. Now, notice as well that he clarifies this diversity group in in verse two, both low and high, rich and poor together. Uh, We notice that his audience here includes the extremes of the spectrum, right? It's a merism. He's got, on one side, we have the the low. On the other side, we have the high. On one side, we have the rich. On the other side, the poor. What he's pointing to, what he's showing us is this message is to all people. Rich and poor, high and low, all inhabitants of the earth. And so let me ask you, does that include you? Does that include me? It does. So this morning, the psalmist calls us to hear this, but what does he call us to hear? Look at verse three and four. It's interesting. He says, my mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. The goal of the psalmist is really plainly laid before us. What's he want to do? He wants to describe wisdom to us. He wants to provide understanding. He's not just giving us a proverb that it has no value or use for our lives. He's giving us something that can be applied. And so we'd be uh, blessed to actually give attention and heed what he says. His desire is that we might grow in wisdom from what we're going to hear today. And notice in verse 4, he says, I'll incline my ear to a proverb, I'll express my riddle on the harp. The message that God's given this psalmist to speak is going to come in the form of a proverb, in the form of a riddle. He's going to open it up and explain it for us. And so the great thing about this psalm is what I th- I hope you'll find is as we go through this text, it's very simple. It's not something that's, that's, that's really deep and hard to understand. It's very simple and very easy for us to understand. And it's a very important concept for us to follow. Uh, the theme of the psalm, one commentator put it this way. I love this quote, This psalm shows us not only the vanity of riches, but the end of those who boast in their riches. Further, it comforts the righteous in their oppression and affliction, not merely by the assurance that they shall finally triumph over the wicked, but by the more glorious hope of life everlasting with God. that's what we're going to see in this psalm, full of, one, the wisdom that comes by recognizing the folly of of riches and a pursuit of them, and also the joy that comes in knowing that we have everlasting life with God, the blessing of trusting in Him. Note as well, one more thing before we jump into the meat of this text. Notice the, the personal nature, the fact that the psalmist is attentive to this message himself. Look at verse three and, uh, verse 4. He says, uh, 3 and 4, My mouth, my heart, I will incline, I will express. It's very personal. And I would encourage you and each of you in this time, this psalmist needs to hear the, and remember the wisdom as much as those that is his audience. And I would encourage you guys for each of us, as I was studying this text, I needed to hear this. As I preach this text, I need to hear this. We all need to be attentive. And I think, as an aside, we must uh, never think that we're too advanced or too mature to cease to listen and grow from the Word. A temptation, I think, that can happen is being puffed up by our knowledge and recognizing that we can always learn from God's Word. So we we should come to it with an eagerness, with a desire to hear from it. And so with that introduction, I want to jump into the main points um, uh, that's going to be a part of this psalm, parts two through four. So verses five through 12, let's turn our attention there. We're going to see first a certain equalizer of all men, a certain equalizer of all men. Uh, The psalmist starts this five and six kind of with a rhetorical question. He says, Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? As we uh, examine the context here, we'll see that this is a rhetorical question uh, and that the position of the psalmist here is that there is no need to fear. That even in the days of adversity, even when there are foes surrounding you, that there is no need to fear. But before we we move there, we have to see something and observe what the author does not do. I think this is important. Sometimes in Scripture, uh, we need to see what's, what's missing. Uh, notice he does not deny the reality of our lives. He does not deny that there will be adversity. He does not deny that the wicked foes, right, Literally in the Hebrew, those that grasp after our heels, those who surround us, who seek to harm us, he doesn't deny that they exist. We always have to start, and one of the things I think the Psalter is so good at doing is expressing the bitterness of affliction. Expressing the bitterness that we have at times when we're in, as Psalms 23 tells us, right, when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And I know for me, and probably the case for some of you, at times it's tempting to try to kind of uh, avoid that or you know, to use Christian platitudes to to, to uh, express the fact that, oh, everything's okay, we're going to make it. But in the midst of the adversity, in the midst of the affliction or the trial, it's okay to feel the weight of that. That should draw us to Christ. That should draw us to our God. That should cause us to seek Him. Sometimes we are surrounded by foes. But notice, these aren't just any foes. Look at verse 6. He describes them. He says, Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Now, of course, this does not mean that all the foes that we face will be rich and wealthy. Or that all wealthy people are foes. Let's make sure we get rid of some logical fallacies, okay? (laughs) It has to be clearly said in this message, and I think it's important, that wealth and riches are not the enemy here. This is not a criticism of wealth. And I've read some of the commentators as they dealt with this text, the error at this point to see that Psalm is a criticism of riches and an exaltation of poverty. That's not what's going on here. The scriptures are clear in other places. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 6 that says that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, not the money itself. So the purpose of our time today, and it was interesting, I was in Shepherd's Conference on Friday, and Mark Dever actually reminded us of this point. He said, you can love money without having much of it. And so our time today, I'm not trying to set up the haves or the haves nots And we don't want to do that. It's easy to do that. Instead, it's the wrongful pursuit of wealth. That's the issue. It's the trusting in wealth That's the issue, and that's what we see in verse 6. It's those who trust in their wealth and boast about their riches. The unfortunate reality of humankind is that there is a great temptation to pursue wealth, to trust in that which we have and what we acquire. And why is that? Because oftentimes what comes with wealth? Power. Power. Not just power, but power that often leads to boasting about what we have, and oppressing those that have less. I mean, that's just the reality. You don't have to, you don't have to be a historian to look around the world that we uh, are in today, or even to think historically of the world that we've lived through and consider the fact that we see oppression very often comes at the hands of what? The hands of those that have wealth. But again, lest we forget it, it's the wielding of that For personal advantage, that's the issue. It's the trusting after that that's the issue. It's not the wealth itself. I've seen and known many men that have been very wealthy, that have used their resources for the kingdom and for the glory of God. And we need to rejoice that God has raised them up for those purposes. So the common error of those pursuing wealth is that they find ultimately their status, their satisfaction, and their security from it. There's also one more thing to add. If you're trusting in wealth, what are you not trusting in? What can't you trust in? God. It's a replacement. So the rhetorical question in 5 and 6 is really clear. We should not fear those who trust in wealth and who boast in the abundance of their riches, but why not? That's what he's going to talk about in verses 7 through 12. Notice he's going to clearly show that all peoples, all inhabitants of the world, both rich and poor, high and low, must face a certain a common equalizer, and that is death. Look at verses seven through nine with me. We're going to see four things about death that I think are are clear in the text. First of all, the first aspect we see is the emphasis that falling, futility, of trusting in riches, that death cannot be bribed. Look at verse seven. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Uh, It's important to notice in these three verses that you have seven and nine are really separated by verse eight, which is, a. if you have the NASB, they use the M dash to set them off. It's, It's a parenthetical statement. If you read seven and nine together, it says this, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. There's the result. In verse 8, it's describing why that's so. Well, why is that so? Because the redemption of a man's soul is costly. He should cease trying forever. See, the reality here of this first point is death does not accept hush money. Man cannot pay for either the redemption of himself or the redemption of any other. No man, rich or poor, high or low, can by any means redeem his life and save himself from death. No man, rich or poor, high or low, can keep himself from undergoing decay, from literally seeing the pit. Psalm 89, 47 through 48 makes this really plain with its own rhetorical question. Listen to it. Remember what my span of life is. For what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? And the assumed answer there is no. As a commentator, John Phillips, uh, so aptly put it, money can buy a castle, but not a mansion in the sky. It can buy pleasure, but not peace. It can purchase service, but not salvation. It can buy men, but it can't buy God. I think this is key when we think about this, and I think illustrated this, I was looking through four, some different illustrations, and it's fascinating how many people, by their, their actions in their lives, seek to buy off death, to make death something further down the road? I, I just read somewhere, it was talking about a, a scientist who just said that they think within the next 50 years that we'll, we'll, we'll unlock the, the key to the fountain of youth. And the anticipation is men will live to be a thousand years old. And interestingly, I found this fascinating, you know where the, the cap on life is currently? 120 years. The oldest centennials hit about 120. Um, but, but there's this push, even through human genetic research, to, to stretch out life. What are they trying to accomplish? They're trying to do exactly what this text says is impossible, right? They're trying to bribe death, to push it off just a little bit further. I, I, I think of Jesus' words in Matthew sixteen, twenty four to 26, in particular, when he, when he says, the ultimate goal of life is the redemption of our souls. And he says this statement, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Yet loses his soul. None of us can redeem our own souls or those of any other. And what folly is there in us to think that we can, and to think that we can actually keep death at arm's length? Well, not only is it true that death can't be bribed, but look at verse 10a with me. Death is no respecter of persons. The psalmist turns his attention to illustrate the point, the point that death could not be bribed, the fact that death doesn't care who you are or where you come from. He notes that all men, even those who trust in their wealth, surely see and know, what? That even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. It's obvious. All of us know. All of us know. Men of wealth, men of wisdom, men of not wisdom, right? Senseless men. What do they all share? The grave. The richest men in history, where will you find them? Besides the ones living in the grave. The poorest men in human history, where are they? Right next to them. Right next to them the wise, the stupid, the senseless, the rich, the poor, the high, the low, all peoples, all inhabitants of the world will perish. And notice the three groups that he gives here just to give us a little bit of a contrast. He says, one, the wise, right? Those who do have understanding. Later in the psalm, he's going to talk about the upright, okay? Even you and I. Our salvation does not ensure that we won't face physical death. It's a great equalizer. And there's some churches that would teach that you can. And I always find it ironic that the man in the pulpit preaching about wealth and health and prosperity, they die. They die. And so it's important that the wise understand that they die. The stupid, this word here is literally translated as fool. It occurs 70 times in the Old Testament. It's always found in wisdom literature, um, all but three of them outside of the psalms are found primarily in proverbs and ecclesiastes but we see this here in psalms and also in psalm 92 and 94 this fool this stupid one is the opposite of the wise man the man that doesn't heed understanding of course and he's reflecting back on these are the men that that does that does what that trusts in their wealth the third group is the senseless another way to translate it is as the brutish this refers to the one who doesn't just merely lack intelligence but rather he also lacks the spiritual sensitivity to recognize his own situation and circumstance. This is the word we see in Proverbs 12.1 that says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is senseless, is stupid. So all of us, we see from this text, meet the same fate, don't we? At the moment of death, there's no partiality paid to the rich over the poor. Ecclesiastes 2:16 says it this way: "For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die." I mean, the rich have the money seemingly to prolong life, it affords them maybe the treatments and medicines that the poor may not be able to afford but we know that man's days are all numbered. Job 14.5 tells us that, doesn't it? Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you and his limits you have set, so he cannot pass. Very encouraging so far, right? God numbers all of our days. Death is the common equalizer. There's an appointed day that comes for you and that will come for me, that no money, no fame, no power can do to keep us from meeting our maker. That day's been established. We've seen that death can't be bribed. We've seen that death is no respecter of persons. Look at 10b. Quickly, death allows no transfer of goods. What's it say in 10b? And leave their wealth to others. The reality is that when death comes, there is a permanent break that happens. There's a a chasm that no longer can be crossed. The wealth of every man goes where? stays here, get passed on. Maybe it's his children. Maybe it's not even his children, someone else that receives what Maybe it's the government, right? His wealth gets passed on. But we know that sometimes people like to, to take their stuff with them. I found this illustration, I think, is great. You're all familiar with King Tut. In 1923, they unearthed King Tut's burial chamber. And within that chamber, they found what in today's value is the equivalent of close to 700 million dollars including a casket that he was in that was made of solid gold. Now, we know from, from uh, Egyptian history that they believed that those items that they would bury the pharaoh with would, would help them as they went into the afterlife. Thousands of years after his burial, guess where it is now? In a museum. In a museum. It did no good for King Tut, right? Right? did no nothing for King Tut. He was not able to enjoy any of his wealth. I just saw another article that was speaking of a man that was buried in his 1973 Pontiac. <laughs> now, besides costing more money to get a larger <laughs> burial plot, what does that accomplish? The reality is we know you can't take it with you. Someday they'll unearth that Pontiac and it will be decomposed and broken down and it will be as useless to that man as it was the day that he went into the ground with it. We always need to remember there's no transfer of goods. You can't take it with you, right? Lastly, notice in verses 11 and 12 that death is final. The psalmist comes to this last section and he says this, their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They've called their lands after their own names. I just want to stop there for a second. Notice the, their claim of permanence. In their inner thought, they think what? Their houses are forever. Their dwelling places are to all generations. They they think they're invincible, right? There is an attitude of invinci- invincibility that says they can buy longevity. They can keep themselves from death's finality. It's as if they, they think that their luxury, that the luxury and extravagance of their dwelling places will insulate them From this common enemy. But not only do they claim permanence, notice as well, they claim possession. What does it say at the end of verse 11? They've called their lands after their own names. If you think about that, how absurd is that? I thought about it for a minute because I read it and I thought that we would call something after our names as though that in some fashion, calling a land after myself, is going to, to continue to keep my legacy going. Is that any good to me? And I'm not saying by the way that this is we shouldn't <laughs> uh, you know name particular things after people in honor of them. That's not what I'm saying and that's not what this text is saying. This is saying that that these men do this in a means in a way of trying to keep their own names going. It's selfishly done. It's done so that they can be remembered. And that's just folly. They go to that extreme as if that possession of that land itself is even theirs. And the irony irony of this is no matter how big our estates are, no matter how much we have, at the end, what do we all get? A six foot plot of ground. That's all we get. But notice verse 12, and this is a key point. This is where the proverb shows up. What's he say? But man in his pomp will not endure He is like the beast that perish. Notice the vain glory, man in his pomp. No matter how permanent he thinks he is, no matter how much wealth he acquires or how many lands he names for himself, death is final and he will not endure, as the text says. All peoples, rich or poor, high or low, wise or fools, we all succumb to death and wealth is no hedge against that. As the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it in in chapter 3, verse 19, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast. So we've seen death can't be bribed. It's no respecter of persons. It does not allow the transfer of goods, and it is final. So part one, we saw a clear address. Part two, a common equalizer. Now we come to verses 13 to 15. This is where where we can have uh, some joy that comes through this text. A contrasting destiny for all men. In this section, the psalmist is going to compare the destiny of the fool with the destiny of the upright. Read it with me. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning and their form shall be for Sheol to consume. So that they have no habitation, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Uh, verse thirteen, with that that first statement, this um, is not pointing back to the previous verses, but pointing ahead to verses fourteen and fifteen. The psalmist begins by comparing these two groups. We have the fool, as we see in verse thirteen. This is the way of those who are foolish, and notice as well, it's not just those who are foolish, but those who approve of their words. Just a little side uh, note that the reality is so often uh, the fool takes a lot with him, it takes a large group of people with him that approve. But notice the fool in verse 14, what it says, it describes him. It describes him as sheep. In verse 12, it said what? It said that they would perish like what? The beasts. And now he says that these are like sheep. Sheep that are appointed for Sheol—they're mean, they're mere animals, and not only they're mere animals, but they've actually been appointed for the grave, for Sheol. Psalm 9:17 says that the wicked will return to Sheol. God has has i am uh, uh, sorry—has appointed a place uh, for the wicked. These mere animals, like sheep, and notice how striking in verse 14. What's it say next? That death shall be their shepherd. I read that and, and it, I meditated on it for a bit because I think of how often through the scriptures we hear of the shepherd. I think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I think of John 10, the good shepherd. But consider this, death shall be their shepherd. Now, one commentator put this well. He said, those who thought they needed no divine guide end up with a shepherd whose name is death, who herds them into Sheol to dwell forever. What an awful thought to think about that they could have had the Lord as their shepherd. They could have had the good shepherd and instead they find themselves subject to death. Nothing more, nothing less. Notice as well that their form and their form shall be for Sheol to consume. Everything that they trusted, their riches, everything they trusted to keep themselves um, healthy and strong, where does it end up? ends up in the grave, gone, consumed by the very grave. And lastly, notice as well that they have no habitation. I mean, we saw just earlier in the text in verse 11, their inner thought was that their habitation, their houses, their dwelling places would be forever. And what do they find? They're ushered into death. They're ushered into Sheol like sheep being led to the slaughter to be consumed without a habitation. That's the state of the fool. But this psalm turns joyous when it looks at the fate, not of the fool, but of the upright. You might've seen it in the middle of 14, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. It's just a little little addition there in the midst that, that shows us the contrast between these two groups. The upright, those are the ones introduced there, the ones that in verse 15, the psalmist says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol the wicked, where do they remain? In Sheol, in the grave. They have no habitation. But what do the upright receive? The upright, those who trust in God are redeemed, are received. And notice that little phrase, but God, one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. You see that throughout the scriptures, but God, but God, but God. And it usually follows something negative. We're dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God. That's what's going on here. It's a beautiful jewel in the midst of this psalm. The psalmist breaks out and reminds us that even though we face adversity, even though that we might have foes that trust in their own wealth and their riches, that would would oppress us, that in the midst of that, we can know that in the morning, the upright shall rule over them. That we can know that God will redeem our souls from the power of Sheol, that he will receive us. Notice the, the, the source of the trust here. It's God. It's all of God. God's the one doing the redeeming. God's the one that is doing the receiving. The upright is redeemed by God and received by him. Uh, one man wrote this, one man robbed, the other man rewarded. One man dead and damned, the other man raptured and redeemed. One man finally helpless, the other finally victorious. Let me just ask you a question. The fool and the upright, who's really the rich man? Who's really the rich man? The fool or the upright? The one that trusts in his wealth and is ushered into Sheol by death, shepherded there? or the one that trusts in God and is ultimately redeemed and received by Him. I think it's important as well, as we think about this verse 15, is to just to understand the, the salve that this is. In the midst of this, this, this psalm that really, I mean, as we're going to finish it up, you'll see that there's not a lot of joy <laughs> that's in the psalm. It seems very dark, but how sweet of God to provide just that that measure there in the midst and while I don't believe that the psalm the psalmist writing this uh, understood fully the promise of redemption, we now can look forward and think into our New Testaments of what that promised truth was. Verse fifteen is just a quick glimpse of the promised eternal life for all of us it should point us forward and it should cause us to think of who? Christ, our Redeemer. Romans 3.23 and 24 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through what? Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18-19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but what? "...with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of of Christ." As we were singing that last hymn about our Redeemer, I was thinking of this text. I'm thinking of the reality that we have the precious blood of Christ that's been applied to our lives to save us, to redeem us. And that should bring us great joy. So we've seen a clear address, a common equalizer a contrasting destiny, and fourthly, in verses 16 to 20, a closing appeal. The psalmist has done well to lay out his argument. He's made it very clear of the end of those that would be wicked, that would trust after riches, and now he makes appeal, an appeal to the men that are listening, to all of us that are in this room. An appeal that we would do what? That we would hear the proverb, that we would hear the riddle, and that we would choose wisdom that we would choose to trust in God, our Redeemer, rather than in our wealth and our riches. And his appeal is really a quick recap. Notice verse 16. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. If you look back to verse 5, what was the, the rhetorical question that he began with? Why should I fear? Now in 16, he says, do not be afraid. Why should I fear? He's shown us that there isn't, a need to fear. Why is there no need to fear the man who trusts in his riches? Because God sees all that goes on. That God is a a perfect and upright and good and wise judge. That God does guarantee a future hope and redemption and a promise for those who would trust in him. Therefore, he can say, do not be afraid. He can say from this text, do not be afraid because they can't take anything with them. When the glory of their house is increased, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His wealth will descend after him. Notice as well in 18, not only are they not able to take what they have with them, but also that their self-praise and the praise from others doesn't necessarily evidence God's pleasure in them. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. What's the, most important, what's the most important words that any of us in this room can hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. The most important words that we can hear are not the words of congratulation that we receive from our peers. They're not the words of self-exaltation that we give to ourselves. The most important words that we can hear is the words that come from our Lord. When we've fought the good fight, when we've ran the race, when we've been faithful, because God looks at the heart, at the motives. He's going to see us when we stand before him as we really are. Nothing that we have, nothing that we've accumulated can, can hide our real view from God. He'll see our hearts exposed. And he'll know everything about us. And though we would congratulate ourselves here or praise ourselves or take the praise of men, those are really the only words that matter. We stand before Him. And notice in verse 20, He finishes by restating the proverb. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. You notice it's just like verse 12, except for one little change. In verse 12, he says, what? Man in his pomp will not endure. In verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding. What's the ultimate distinction here? The ultimate distinction erased by death is spiritual understanding. The fool does not understand that trust in God is far superior to trusting in riches or wealth. The wise man recognizes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That to trust in God is, is how we come to know Him and how we come to serve Him and how we come to love Him. The wise man thinks of Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. The wise man, the one who understands, recognizes Proverbs 9.10, that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And that the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Ultimately, we all need to heed this song and realize that no man can redeem himself from death. We know that. I haven't said anything today that you didn't know. It's true. It's very clear. But do we live that? Do we find ourselves trusting in riches to provide something that they never can, rather than trusting in God? True wisdom is displayed as we trust in God. To close, I want to turn ahead to Luke chapter 12, and I just want to read a parable with you. James Montgomery Boyce said that often the New Testament, uh, there's parables and stories in the New Testament that explain the Old Testament. He says Psalm 49 explains the New Testament in this particular parable. Luke 12:13 to 21. And I just want to read this in closing. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them this parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jim Elliot once said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We thank you, Father, for the time that we've been able to spend in your word and we thank you for your faithfulness to us to give us the scriptures and to give us, Lord, wisdom that we can apply to our lives, Lord, that we might serve you and love you. And Lord, we pray that even in this room today that, Lord, we would all take stock of our own hearts and our own lives. We would analyze what we do trust Father, that we would see the truth of this text, the reality that, Lord, trusting in riches does not lead to anything but death, but trusting in you, Lord, leads to redemption. that day, then we will be received by you. May that uh, cause us to live our lives, uh, Lord, in service to you, our Lord, trusting in you day by day. We might love you, know you, and serve you. Thank you so much for our time this morning. In Christ's name, amen.